How's everybody doing? It's weird, isn't it? Uh, it's like this weird like deja vu experience, like you're in a place that's familiar, but you've never been there before type thing. It's, uh, hey, something kind of neat. I didn't talk about this at any of the other ones because I guess it just didn't register. Kyle hit me on the back and this is the last service he'll ever have before he becomes a dad. So that's kind of cool, right? Um, and if it's your first time here, you'll, you'll have to bear with me for a second. Those of you who've been coming to this church for a long time, I, I hope you know our heart by now. Um, we pushed really hard. I, I'm just, it's the 11, so I have as much time as I need, right? So uh, um, I'm going to confess something to you. The last, the last couple of months, I've not been myself. I, and a lot of you who've worked in this, this side, we have literally, no exaggeration, thousands and thousands of volunteer hours. Besides the uh, HVAC system and besides the electrical work, everything was volunteers, everything. Every wall, everything was, was volunteers and thousands and thousands of hours. And we didn't go into any debt. We paid for everything in cash as we went. And just, just um, and we do, we, we did all this, all these, you know, these neat lights and neat sound. And you guys probably didn't even know we had a real band because you could never see them until this weekend. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you can say, wow, there's people up there playing music, right? So uh, we do all this not for the glory of the experience or not for, for so you can brag about, you know, how neat your church is or we can or anything. We don't do that. Uh, we, we, we pushed so hard to get in here because I just I felt everything inside me that God was really going to bless us this weekend. And not so we could brag on numbers but so a lot of people could hear the gospel. And we just wanted to make sure that there was enough seats for people to hear the gospel. And so, uh, I, I won't lie to you, it's, it's weird. We started this church with three people seven years ago and, and nothing. And um, to see how much God has honored us and, and been faithful to us, it, it's just, it's humbling. And I wanna tell you guys, thank you. And if it's your first time here, um, it's such a great group of people, and uh, we're so blessed, and uh, I love you guys so much, and, um, and I just thank you a lot for all the blood and sweat that you've put into this, and it's not for a building. It's for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and that's what we're doing it for, and so I just want to tell you thank you. Oh, man. I'm going to be a mess this whole service, so yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to be a mess. My, my feet are all like clammy right now, but I, I, I have my own like little mini stage so I can get it as clammy as I want up here, right? It's good. The only person that stands up here besides me is Corey Drake and we don't care about him. So it's, uh, it's all good. Uh, if you've never been here before, we usually go through whole books of the Bible. We're in the middle of Hebrews, which I'm really, really enjoying. We'll do Hebrews chapter five next week, and we'll break that down. And um, I got most of that done already, and we'll, we'll do that next week. And we only take a break from doing chapter by chapter, line by line through the Bible for a couple of reasons. One is uh, baptism lessons. We do it for vision service lessons, where we just kind of go over all the details of our church, which I really enjoy those. And then, of course, once a year uh, on this weekend, we take a break and talk about the resurrection. Now, this is a big deal. Even if you're not a Christian in here, you know that this is a, a, a big holiday. And of course, we tend to make holidays a lot of things that they're not intended to be. But we need to go back and research why this weekend is such a big deal. Now, I'm going to get into that here in a second. We're going to go way back to the beginning of the Bible, and we're going to talk about why this weekend is such an important weekend to celebrate, okay? Before I get into that, everyone should have got a notes handout. When you walked in, if you're new, you should have got that. 
If you didn't get one, if you get on Uversion, it's a free app on your phone. If you click on events, our church will pop up, and it's got all the notes and all the scripture and everything on there, which is pretty handy and pretty cool, and you can sign up for things and prayer requests and all that jazz through there. That's pretty convenient. And uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into this lesson. I'm going to try to keep it together for you guys, and uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? All right. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. You're unreal, God. I just, I just thank you so much, and uh, I love you so much. God, just thankful, thankful. I'm so thankful for your faithfulness, God, and your mercy and your love. I pray, God, that through this lesson today, if there's anyone in this room who's not a believer, Lord, I pray, God, that as we talk about what you did, I pray, Lord, that something starts to stir in their heart. God, all the people in this room who are believers, I pray, Lord, that maybe they can learn a new dimension or maybe they can just be reminded of how great you are, Lord, and that you can touch their hearts. Father, we want to pray for every single church in our city. We want to pray, God, that your kingdom is advanced through those churches. We want to pray that uh, the more people come to know you through the other churches in our town, Lord, that we can work together and we can just move your kingdom forward, Lord. This is all for your glory, and it's all for your name, God, and it's all to lift you up and not us, God. And so we pray all these things in the only name that saves, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, if we're going to understand the resurrection, you have to understand where this whole story started. Now, when I look at the Bible, I look at this as a love story. All throughout the Bible, the analogy is made that he is the husband and that his people are the bride. So there's this intimacy between us and God. And this intimacy started way back in the beginning of the book, all right? Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read you something, and then I'll explain kind of the setting of this, okay? This is what it says in Genesis chapter 3. Then the man, that's Adam, and his wife, Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, The woman that you gave to me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord asked the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, It was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate the fruit. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, that's the devil, right? Because you've done this, you are cursed more than any other livestock more than any other wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This is the important part. God is speaking of Jesus. He says, he will strike your head, talking to the devil, and you will strike his heel. Okay. Now, let's go back two more chapters. I'm not going to read it, But even if you're not a believer in this room, you're pretty familiar with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Most people are, okay? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that's the story of all creation. That's where we see God at His his most uh, uh, creative work in the Bible, okay? Now, the first thing that we know God as in the Bible, which I find fascinating because I'm kind of an art geek, is the first attribute we see of God is He is a creator. He's the creator God. He's artistic. And so we see that he started off with this blank canvas. He created the, the, the universe, the stars, the solar systems, the sun. He created the earth. 
on the earth. He separated the water, the land. We have the atmosphere that protects us and makes this planet livable for, uh, for us. The vegetation, don't just think of grass. Think of all the beautiful colors. Think of all the different kinds of trees, all the different kinds of plants, all this beautiful vegetation, how beautiful that would be. If you zoom in a little bit, God starts to create the species of animals, over 230,000 known aquatic animals, 10,000 different kinds of birds, 5,000 mammals, 13,500 different kinds of reptiles, I don't really get that one, and millions and millions of insects, right? We all have those two questions we're gonna ask God, or maybe I do, who shot JFK and why bugs, right? <laughs> those are my two questions for God. Who shot him? and why mosquitoes? I don't get that. What purpose do they serve? Anyways, the greatest work of God was not the solar system. It wasn't the sun and the moon and the planets. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't the vegetation. It wasn't the animals. It wasn't the environment. It wasn't the atmosphere. That was not the pinnacle of his creation. Though he stepped back at all of those things and he said, that's good. That's good. All of his handiwork. The greatest thing that God ever made was mankind. The reason why we know that is mankind is the only thing that looks like God. We resemble God. Not only do we resemble God, we're made in his image, it says, do we have the breath of life breathed into us from God. That means we're the only things that are eternal. We're the only things that have a soul. We're the only thing that's going to live forever. And I'm not trying to be political, no, I'm not trying to be controversial. That means that we are above the environment. That means that we are above wildlife. Not that we abuse those things. I would make the argument that God gave us dominion over those things to take care of those things, but God made us above those things to enjoy them and to glorify Him. In all things we do, we glorify Him. But the point is this, is the greatest thing that God ever did was you and me. That's something to keep in mind. So we see that he's not only the creator God, right? The great artist that is God. He's also a relational God. Not only did he want to make something beautiful, you and I, he wanted to have a relationship with us. He longed to talk with us. Look at Genesis 3. It was a common thing that Adam and Eve and God would stroll around the garden and walk and talk and commune. And God made this perfect environment for them right? You can run around naked and hang out with lions and ride on elephants and like this, I mean, that's just that's what I think of when I think of the Garden of Eden. But anyways, this beautiful area where you could commune with God, you could flourish. And again, you don't have to be a Christian to know how the story goes, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything. In Genesis 3, we messed it up. The serpent deceived Eve and Eve deceived Adam and Adam was deceived and and there was the fall of man, the disobedience of humanity that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Now, what happens there? The story kind of takes a turn, right? If you're reading the Bible, this huge love story that is the Bible. And starting in Genesis chapter 3, there is this pursuit. Again, if we're thinking of it like a love story, right? This, this bride and this, this husband, they break up. And the husband doesn't give up on the bride. Instead, the husband runs after, pursues and again, we know the breakup happened shortly after the creation of man. The fall of man started. Sin was introduced into the picture. But right off the bat, right when God was talking about this fall, right in front of all the parties involved, God looks at Satan and says, I am going to set this straight. 
You have messed things up. I'm going to send a Savior who is going to strike your head and you're going to bruise his heel. So from the third chapter of the entire Bible, we get a foreshadowing of Jesus, a foreshadowing of the Savior. And then the rest of the Old Testament, if you, you don't have to do this if you don't have a Bible, but if you look at the Old, this is the entire Old Testament in my big fat Bible that I have here. This entire chunk, all the way from the first five books all the way to the book of Malachi, that's the last book of the Old Testament, this is the pursuit of God. And in this pursuit is God is running after his people, trying to get their attention. God would periodically send men and women. He would send prophets. He would send leaders. He would send writers. He would send priests. He would send kings. He would send all these people to try to get the attention of the people who had strayed away from him, trying to fix this fractured relationship. And the whole time these men and women were sent, to warn the people and correct the people and encourage the people. They would all be talking about, you can go through the whole Bible and Jesus is in almost every single book of the Bible all the way through. That you can go and you can see that all these men and women talked about the anointed one, the savior that was to come. If you go back into Jewish history, when kids were about three and a half, four years old, they would start hearing from a very young age, young enough to comprehend that there was going to be the savior, that God was going to set everything right, and that was going to happen through a Savior. Now, not to be pessimistic, I can do that sometimes, not to be pessimistic, but when you look not only at the grandeur of God, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, when you walk out and see the night sky tonight, the God that created all that, created the earth, created all the planets, created everything, when you learn how awesome that is, and when you see how loving He is, one would have to ask, why would such a perfect God choose to leave his throne and not just come down and be with this broken, messed up creation? Not just be with us, but be one of us. That he would not come just to be with us, but, but be one of us. That he did that. He interjected himself. Now, not only did Jesus come down to earth and look us in the eye, you could touch him, you could feel him. Not only that, but he had a purpose. One of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, he wrote a very lengthy book of the Old Testament. He was talking about the coming Savior and how the coming Savior was going to fix the problems of humanity. And this is what he says. He says, talking of Jesus, he says, he himself bore our sicknesses, carried our pains, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace, and we are healed by his wounds. The breakup wasn't God's fault, but God was going to bear the brunt of having to get this relationship back into alignment. It goes on to say, it wasn't Jesus that messed it up. We went astray. We were the ones that did our own thing, went our own way. Do you know that's the one lie that the devil has always tried to push? The one lie back in Genesis chapter 3, he didn't walk up to Eve and say, hey, you should just totally renounce God. He simply put this seed of doubt in her head. Did he really say that you couldn't do that? Did he really say, you know that you can be like God. You can control your own destiny. You can go your own way. That's the one lie that Satan has always pushed. And so if we see this, it says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but Jesus never complained. Even in the midst of his crucifixion, he never opened his mouth. 
He didn't complain. He didn't speak hateful things against anyone. He didn't call down angels to save him. He knew that the Father had a plan for him. And he was taken away because of oppression and because of judgment. And who considered his fate? It says that he was taken from the land of the living. That means that the Savior of the world was going to die. Going to die. And why was he going to die? Not because he did anything wrong. He was struck down because of my people's rebellion. My people's rebellion. So for thousands of years, guys, thousands of years, I think if I'm not mistaken, Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. So for generations and generations and generations, little kids all the way until they reached their adulthood had heard the story that Isaiah talked about had heard that a Messiah was going to be sent, heard that someone was going to pay for all the mistakes of mankind. And so the crescendo of the love story happens in the Gospels. And the crescendo, the peak, the pinnacle, the, the, the huge action of this Bible isn't just the fact that God came to earth, that Jesus came down to earth. It's the fact that he died for us and that he rose again in order to bridge this gap between us and God. Let me read you something. This is Jesus speaking. This is after his resurrection. He's met up with his disciples, and this is what he says. Then he told his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the entire Old Testament. Jesus said, all the things you've ever heard, all the promises you've ever heard, all the scripture you've ever studied, I am the fulfillment of that. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written, that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He looked at his followers. He said, you are witnesses of these things, and look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. So the crescendo of the Bible is not that Jesus came to earth. The crescendo of the Bible is that Jesus came to earth with a plan, that he came with a purpose, with a mission, that humanity had become so off track from God, that we had become so evil, so bad, that instead of wiping us out, instead of him ending the whole project, if you will, God personally came down, looked humanity in the eyes, gave us the example of how to live. Go into the gospels. If you wonder how to handle someone that steals from you, Jesus explains that. If you wonder how to handle difficult people, he explains that. If you wonder how to handle marital issues or problems at work or problems with government, Jesus shows us how to handle that. He gives us the ultimate example of how to live. He also came down to die for the brokenness and sins of humanity. It says that while Jesus was on the cross, he bore the weight of every sin that had ever happened before him and every sin that would happen afterwards. Not only did he die for us, though, oh, this is something that blew my mind this week. Jesus loves us so much, not that he thinks we're just worth dying for, he thinks we're worth living for, that he rose from the grave and that he poured out his spirit. That's what he's talking about in that scripture I just read. Jesus told his followers, hang out for a little bit because a part of God is going to live in you. 
We were separated from God. Jesus paid the price. And we're gonna have the complete fulfillment of it when we get to heaven. But until we get to heaven, there is a piece of God's spirit that lives in the believer. Let that sink in. The God that spoke the universe into existence lives in me, lives in you, and gives us eternal salvation if we accept him. That we can be saved, that we can be justified, that we can be set apart and used by God. But again, I'm gonna take us down a pessimistic road. In light of all the things going on in the world, one must ask, why? Why? I joke around sometimes. It's a good thing that Corey's not God, right? I would have zapped us a long time ago, right? Look at what happened in Brussels last week. A lot of you guys don't even know what happened in Brussels last week because people, 35, 40 people dying in a terrorist act has become common in our day and age. There's more slaves right now on planet Earth than all of human history before this year. There's more slavery right now than we've ever had. There's children sold into sex trafficking all over the world. If you've ever been out of the country, almost every country except for North America, you can find children who are sex slaves. All around the world, there is famine, and there is war, and there is racism, and there is hatred. We are a depraved, broken people. And now again, I'm not trying to be just pessimistic and dark today. But it's not a stretch for us to step back and say, God, why would you go to such lengths for us? Now the question, or I should say rather the answer, lies in the next point. The reason why God would go to the lengths he did and give his only begotten son for us is because when God looks at us, we, there's something that he sees in us and that we don't even see ourselves. When God looks down at broken humanity, he doesn't see it like I see it. He sees it from the vantage point of a perfect father, right? Who looks down and says, I know they're broken. I know they're flawed. I know that they need me, but I see a value in them. And so he looks at this huge expanse that is the universe, and there's this pale blue dot, Carl Sagan, right? This pale blue dot, and that God zooms in on this pale blue dot that is this huge landscape of a universe, and he sees us as individuals, and he longs to have a relationship with us as individuals because he thinks we're the most valuable thing he has ever created. So recently, this is kind of off a, off a side note here. Recently, uh, again, because the last like two months, I've just not been 100%, right? I've been working like 15 hours a day here, and like we, we weren't sure if we were going to get in here on time and use language I haven't used in a long time. And anyways, that's a whole other story, but um, just haven't been 100%. And I was in my uh, kitchen one day, and I was washing the dishes, and um, I was just kind of like zoning out and staring out the window, probably washing the same dish for like 15 minutes, you know, just like looking at my, my neighbors probably think I'm psychotic, you know? And so, uh, well, there he is washing the, the dish again, you know? And um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm looking out the window and I'm just kind of staring out washing the dish and, and, um, and so I just kind of mumbled I, I need to buy an old car again I just need something to fix up you know and Alicia's like yeah you should do that you should buy an old car and I was like really? and I kind of snapped out of my dish I used to own an old uh, 71 Plymouth right? no radio no air conditioning two doors bought it and it was just like not super fancy and it restored this old car and loved it. And you guys know this if you have kids. When you have kids, everything cool you have, you just have to sell. Um, and so the, the Plymouth was gone, right? 
all my old Gibson guitars gone. Everything's gone. That's cool. You know, and you're just kind of left with like little, you're left with pictures that you show people and you're like, once upon a time, I was a cool guy. Look, <laughs> I captured it on film. Um, you guys know where I'm talking about with that. When you're around people who are into old cars though, there are people, if you get on Craigslist or eBay, and you'll see someone selling this, like, literally, like, something out in the middle of a field that's rusted up like crazy and a piece of junk, you know, a 1961 Cadillac or something like that. And the average individual sees it, and they're just like, man, that's just a bunch of junk. But someone who appreciates what that car used to be sees it, and they're just like, man, with a little bit of time, with a little bit of elbow grease, with a little bit of investment, if I could just get my hands on that, I could make it into something beautiful. That's how God looks at us that broken, rusted out thing somewhere that no one else can see the value in, but he goes, man, if I got a hold of that, you could never believe what it could be. Now, we see this all throughout the New Testament, right? I don't know if you guys knew this or not, and pardon my language. Jesus hung out with some screwed up people. He still does, right? But if you go back in the New Testament, in the Gospels, some of the people that Jesus hung out with, I'm going to pull out three of my favorite. These are some of my favorites. The first one is Jesus hung out with a woman named Mary Magdalene. Now, if you don't know much about Jewish culture in about 33 AD, men and women didn't hang out with each other, especially single men and women. It's not like today to where, you know, there's a nice girl you meet, hey, let's go to Steak and Shake and drink a shake and hang out. That's not a big deal. That's actually quite normal, right? In this day and age, you would not hang out with a woman in public. Not only did Jesus hang out with a woman in public, he hung out with a woman that everyone knew had been demonically possessed at one time. She had a stigma about her. Not only that, we don't know for sure, but we speculate that she was also a prostitute. So Jesus was all counterculture, right? Not only was he hanging out with a woman in public that you don't do, he was hanging out with a woman that everyone knew her garbage, everyone knew her dirty laundry, right? Okay, so another one of Jesus' really, really close friends was a guy named Peter. Most of the men in this room can identify with Peter. Hot-tempered business owner. He owned a fishing industry, right? All these people would go out and they would fish and he owned all these different boats and had a really, really hot temper. In fact, one time, the only time that Jesus was arrested, soldier puts his hands on Jesus. Peter grabs a sword, cuts the guy's ear off. Jesus is like, come on, Peter, you know, put the ear back on. <laughs> it wasn't quite that, that casual, you know, but... Uh, put the ear back on the soldier, turned around to Peter and said some of my favorite words in the Bible. He said, Peter, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. That's what he said to him. Peter had a hot head, man. Not only a hot head, when, the, when that same night when Jesus was being arrested, Peter denied his best friend three times. We talk about Judas. Judas only denied Jesus one time. Peter did it three times. Three times he denied him. Another one of Jesus' close friends was a guy named Thomas. Thomas was like the Debbie Downer of the group, right? He was like the emo kid of the, of, of the group, right? And so <laughs> it's the first time I used that analogy of all four services. That was a good one. If I could go back in time. Um, Thomas was sarcastic. He was negative. He was known as Doubting Thomas, the doubter. Okay, that's not good. Then there's the rest of the followers, right? The rest of the disciples. Some of them rich, some of them poor, some of them intelligent, some of them very ignorant. Some of them were right-wing nuts. Simon the Zealot, he was like a hardcore nationalist, kind of like, you know, just really politically crazy. He had this very diverse group of people. They made a lot of mistakes. They lived in fear all the time. And what these men and women were is they were products of Genesis chapter 3. It had happened thousands of years before they were alive, but they were products of that fall. 
that disconnect between us and God. Their sin brought on all these different symptoms of their sin, the ramifications of their sin. They were spiritually confused. Again, Mary Magdalene, demon-possessed, spiritually confused, emotionally unstable. They were guilty. They were riddled with guilt. They were greedy, Judas, right? They were greedy. They were disobedient. Some of them were arrogant. I'm not trying to be uh, uh, disrespectful towards the Bible at all. Read the Gospel of John. John was a, a touch arrogant. Whenever you write a book of the Bible and you refer to yourself as the beloved one, that's a, little, that's a little cocky, right? Not only that, the story of the resurrection in the Gospel of John written by John is he and Peter found out that the tomb was empty and they both took off running and John saw it fit to say that he outran Peter. <laughs> it's, Peter was a little chunky, you know, and John was faster and younger and beat him, you know, so... Um, why he had to put that in there. That's just kind of funny. But these guys had faults. They had failures. They had insecurities, just like you and I, just like you and I. And this was all results of the fall. But here's what's great about God. When we come into a relationship with God, when we come into church, right? I know churches, this is not your relationship with God. This is just where we congregate, right? But when you come into a relationship with God, God lets you come however you are. And the church should let you come however you are, however messed up, however addicted, however struggling, whatever insecurities, whatever brokenness, you should be able to come like that. But God never leaves us how he finds us. And the church should never leave people how they find them. Listen, if we recall that we're fallen, all the time we say that, right? We're broken, we're broken, we're broken. If we recall that we're broken, we must also recall that God pursued us. If we remember the fall, we must remember his pursuit. And if we remember the pursuit, we must remember that he caught up with us on the cross. And all the sins of the past are bought, and all the sins of the future are bought. The failures of mankind have been paid for. The disconnect and the distance between us and God has been eliminated. And so if the death of Jesus paid for the sins, the resurrection was proof that we are fixable. It's proof that we can be restored. That's what that is. It's proof that our relationship with God can be put back together. Do you want proof? Let me show you. Mary Magdalene, the demonically possessed promiscuous woman, right, became one of the greatest leaders of the Christian movement. In a time when women don't lead, we might elect a female president. There's female prime ministers and presidents all over the world. It's not a big deal to us now. But in this time, women didn't lead. And Mary stepped up by the power of the Holy Spirit and led. In a male-dominated culture, she led. Peter, right? Hot-tempered Peter, who denied Jesus three times. So after Jesus was resurrected, he was walking down the beach one day. He showed up to his disciples multiple times. Peter's out fishing, right? Him and Josh Brooker out there on a boat fishing. That was a joke. <laughs> and so Peter's out there fishing, sees that Jesus is on the shore, jumps out of the boat, swims to shore. Fast forward a little bit. He and Jesus are sitting alone and they're eating fish together, the fish that Peter had caught. Isn't that beautiful? Just love that, by the way. They're sitting there just hang, hanging out eating. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, of course. And then again, later on in the conversation, Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, of course. 
And then one more time in conversation, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes. And then it registered. <laughs> Every time I denied Jesus, he gave me the opportunity to be forgiven. Let that soak in. For every time you deny him, he gives you a chance to come right back. Not only did Peter be restored, Peter became a gifted speaker. If you weren't here last week to hear Pastor David Young, he's fun, right? David Young, who is, I wonder how many people we lost to that church, right? But anyways, uh, <laughs> when, when David Young was here last week, he taught on Acts chapter 2. Almost all of Acts chapter 2 is Peter speaking. It's him teaching a lesson. It's him giving the first sermon. Peter became the leader of the church. The same guy that cut a guy's ear off and denied Jesus became the leader of the church. He became the first, the, the Catholics call him the first pope. Thomas, doubting Thomas, this is my favorite one. Doubting Thomas, the guy that was pessimistic and negative and skeptical, right? This guy journeyed 2,500 miles to what is modern-day India and spread the gospel from Jerusalem to India 2,500 miles away. That's like if you walked to Los Angeles and back. That's what he did. There's no telling how many millions of people came into a relationship with Jesus because of old doubting Thomas. Then we see the rest of the disciples, right? After Jesus was crucified, all these fearful disciples rented an apartment in Jerusalem, the upper room we call it, because Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem. And they were terrified, right? Jesus was just hung on a cross. And all the disciples were like, oh my gosh, the Jews are going to find us and they're going to do the same to us. They were scared. It says here in John chapter 20, verse 19, they were locking the doors. They were terrified. The doors were locked. Jesus, because he's omnipotent and he's all-powerful and he's omnipresent, walks through the door, right? This locked door shows up and says, peace be with you. Jesus came in. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on all the followers of Jesus. Now look, where they were once fearful people locked in a room in fear, look what happens in the next book of the Bible. In Acts chapter 17, the church had started and, and, and they're just going out and they're spreading the gospel and miracles are happening. People are being baptized. In every city that the Christians would walk into, they weren't referred to as cowards. They were referred to as the men that have turned the world upside down. No longer fearful, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say, they're acting contrary to Caesar's decrees and they're saying that there's only one king Jesus. These are the men and women who are locked up in a room in fear. Now they are going out and changing the world. Now, I don't know what your perception of Easter is. Again, we call it Resurrection Sunday around here. One of these days, I'm going to teach the lesson on the history of the, the holiday of Easter, but that's going to offend a lot of people. Yeah, I know that's, that's a very offensive lesson, but one day I'm going to do it, right? Um, the point of the resurrection, the point of this weekend, why we celebrate these things, and guys, this is not derogatory. It's, it's not for, for Easter bunnies, and it's not for parachuting out of planes or giveaways or, or any of those things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. We took our daughter to the, uh, uh, the Easter egg hunt at Siegel, the park over there the other day. They put the eggs like six miles away from the kids. You know, and um, I don't know if anyone else did that, but I'm sitting there with Aya, she's my seven-year-old, and they blow a whistle and they, they run literally. It's probably like a quarter mile. And about halfway through the field, Aya just stops and she's just like. <laughs> and I'm, I'm back here, I'm just like, here's my, here's my athletic daughter. And, um, 
<laughs> but all these kids, I felt so bad for them. Those things are fun, and it's fun to get out, and it's fun to fellowship, and it's fun to eat way too much ham and, you know, sweet potatoes and stuff like that. But the reason why we do all this, the reason why we gather, there's three reasons. The first one is this. Jesus came, lived, and died, and rose again so our relationship to the Creator could be restored. The God, listen, the God that created light, not a light, the God that created light wants to have a relationship with you. The God that created light in the universe, the God that created you and I, the God that knit us together in our mother's womb wants nothing more than to talk to you on your commute to work. Nothing more than to have a cup of coffee with you. Nothing more to hear about your day, to talk to you about your children. That's what God wants out of us. We don't serve a God that sits with lightning bolts ready to zap us every time we make a mistake. We serve a God or we should serve a God that just wants to walk around with us in the cool of the day, that wants to stroll around with us in the park and talk. That's what Jesus came to do to restore that. Jesus also came to set us free of sin, to set us free of the bondage that we've been in. Look, I've said this before, and I don't mean this derogatory. I've got nothing against AA, NA, SA, any of those things. They're great programs. Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous. I have nothing wrong with any of those groups. They're fantastic, and they've helped a lot of you in this room. The only problem I have with those programs is people stand up and they say, my name is Corey Trimble, and I'm still an alcoholic. According to Colossians chapter 2 of the Bible, when you repent for your sins and you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation in Him. You are no longer what you used to be. You are set free. You are set free from the shackles of sin and the oppression of sin, and not just the bondage of sin, you're set free from the results of the sin. You're set free from the ramifications, the doubt, the fear, the shame, the confusion, the insecurities, the rebellion, the anger, the depravity, the worthlessness. There are so many people that walk around with worthlessness and hopelessness, and that is not what God has designed you to live like. You are not worthless and you are not hopeless. That is not what God has designed. What God did, what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us through his death, burial, and resurrection was to give us back the identity that we were always meant to have. If there's one thing, if you haven't heard anything I've said today, I hope you leave with this. You are of value to God. You are of value to God. You are not worthless. You are not unrestorable. This is what Jesus said. Now listen, Jesus in Luke chapter four, there was a bunch of people, a crowd, big crowd like this, and they were studying the Old Testament and Jesus took the Old Testament, the Jews call it the Tanakh, and he was reading from the Old Testament a passage that was actually about him, a prophecy about him, and this is what it said. The spirit of the Lord is on me. This is Jesus talking about himself. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to give sight to the blind, and to set free the oppressed. It doesn't get any better than that. 
you wonder what the resurrection did, if you wondered what Jesus' mission is, it is this, to speak good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to those of you who are captive, to give sight to you who are blind, and to set free those of you who are oppressed. Jesus came, lived, and died in order to restore a relationship with his most treasured masterpiece. Some of you, I pray that you're listening to me, his most treasured masterpiece, you. 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 My favorite story in the Bible, and I'll leave you with this. Jesus was walking with his 12 disciples, right? His 12 closest friends. And this is not the best way to get people to follow you, but he's telling them how they're going to go through these tribulations and how they're all going to die. <laughs> hey, this is going to really suck. Follow me. You know? <laughs> so, so Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he senses that they're scared, right? We're all scared. And he senses that his followers, his closest followers are scared. So Jesus stops and he turns around and he looks at him. He says, you know, guys, I know how many hairs are on your head. They're probably like, what? And so he, he starts over and he says, hey, guys, when you go into the marketplace, they sell these little bitty cheap birds. This is what Jesus is saying to his followers. He says they sell these little cheap birds, these sparrows. I don't know if you've ever seen a sparrow. They literally roll around in dirt. They sell these cheap birds. And he says, that's the cheapest thing in the marketplace. He goes, guys, how much do they sell those things for? One of his disciples said, well, you can get two of them for a penny. It's about as cheap as you can get, right? You can get two sparrows for a penny. Jesus sits for a second and he says, do you know every time, he says this to his followers, he says, do you know every single time one of those sparrows dies and hits the ground, my Father in heaven knows. And then he looks at him and he says, how much more valuable do you think you are than sparrows? You look like God. He's breathed his life into you. You're the most important thing that he's ever done. And all he wants to do is take some of your time. He wants to be with you. He wants that chasm, that divide. He just wants to be with you. If you've never heard it before, God loves you so, so much. Let me speak something else to you. I have a father that hasn't spoken to me in three years. Before that, he didn't speak to me for five. Until I was 11 years old, he wasn't in my life at all. I can empathize with those of you that, that, that have scars. I can empathize with those of you that uh, have issues, insecurities. I'm with you. I'm with you. I can empathize. Let me tell you this, though. I have a heavenly father that has never let me down. I have a heavenly father that gives me peace and security and value. Every scar I have, I'm not trying to be cheesy, but I feel the Lord run his hands over those scars and they still may be there, but he's slowly restoring those things back to the way they were. And one day we're gonna be in a perfect glorified body in heaven. I'm gonna get to wrap my arms around my heavenly father. 
That is available for all of you in this room. A perfect relationship with a perfect dad. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If there's anyone in this room, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there'll be people on my left, some men and women, who are great, God-fearing, spirit-filled people. If you have any need in your life, anything, anything, guys, anything, please let them pray for you. Just come up here and they'll pray for you. If you're in here and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you don't even know where to start. If you come up here, Josh, who's our executive pastor, he'll, he'll answer any questions you might have and he'll help you out. For the rest of you in here, there's communion on all the trays on the left and right. There's some on my left and some on my right, and you're welcome to help yourself. That represents the body and blood of Jesus, the God that came and lived and died and rose again for us. And the only thing that stops you from taking that is you have to ask God to forgive you. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want to say it one more time. God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not die, but have everlasting life. And for any of you who don't think you're good enough, you're good enough. God loves you. God cares about you. You're valuable. You're his masterpiece. You're the greatest thing he's ever done. God longs to be near you. If he knows every time a bird dies and hits the ground, how much more does he care about you? Please let him into your heart. Please let him into your life. Father, we thank you. God, you're perfect and you're holy, Lord, and we love you and we praise you and we adore you, God. I pray, Father, that you bring hope and peace, and joy to everyone in this room. God, I pray, Lord, that we can find refuge and security and safety in you. Put us back together, God. We may be broken, Lord, but you are the ultimate restorer. Thank you, Jesus, that you would even see it fit to fix us. We love you, God, and we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much.